0: I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work, Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. I am here with Tempany Anderson. Tempany is a psychotherapist, a licensed mental health counselor like myself, a certified addiction professional, a certified EMDR therapist and a certified sex therapist. Tempany and I have known each other for over 10 years and she's a colleague and a friend and Tempany I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: You're welcome. I'm glad to be here, Eric. All
0: right. So You and I met when we were working for the Seminole Tribe of Florida in the Family Services Program, which does all of the behavioral health and substance abuse therapy for the Seminole Tribal members and members of the community. And at that time, I was one of the program administrators, and you were a therapist in our Hollywood location. And I think... From a very early time there, it was obvious that you were a standout among the therapists. I think for a person who was relatively new at that time, you were put into some complicated situations. You were given difficult cases. I think we went to the traveling youth conference for a week over the summer, which is pretty heavy lifting. And I remember when you told me that you were moving on to go do something else. And I pretty much begged you to try to stay and everything. But I, I knew that you were moving on. I was sure that you would go on to be a big success in whatever it was you were doing. And it, it looks like that's pretty much happened.
1: Oh, Thank you, Eric. It was a difficult decision to make to leave the Seminole Tribe. I enjoyed the work that I did. In addition to working with the tribal members, but the traveling and just different experiences outside the realm of therapy and making the decision to move to work for a local treatment center was difficult, but addiction was part of the passion, what I knew I wanted to treat. And so it led me that direction.
0: Yeah, I have worked in substance use disorder treatment centers since 1995 and took a break from it in 2004 to go work for the tribe and then re-entered the South Florida behavioral health substance use disorder treatment scene back in 2015, was a part of that before going into full-time private practice. And one of the things I would say about that is I think it's actually an amazing training ground for people who are going to go on and work as psychotherapists because you see such a variety of presentations and you really cover all of the difficult dynamics of the human experience, trauma, sexual abuse, abandonment, all of that, every variation of co-occurring mental health condition, personality disorders, family work, family of origin work, and it's really well blended. And I think a lot of us who have worked in treatment go on to do very well in some form of specialty that really is like an offshoot of our experience working in treatment. For me, that was a lot of the work in trauma and also grief and loss and for you, I know heavy trauma and also the other domains dealing around sex and sexuality, sexual abuse, and how a lot of a person's current sexual behavior and pathology around that is sequel to sexual abuse or or abandonment and neglect and things like this in, in childhood. And I know that you really are an expert in that and are very well regarded in the community for your expertise in that area.
1: It's really interesting that you bring that up. As I left the Seminole Tribe, it looked by all accounts like I was going to work in treatment and work solely with addictions. And what I came to find in working at the treatment center was it was all about trauma. It was all about grief and loss. It was all about sexual concerns issues. It was all about the personality disorders. And so the Seminole Tribe really did lay the foundation for that. As much as I like working with people who are attempting to get sober and change the way they live, the passion really is around trauma. And that's what's underlying a lot of what goes on. So I became a sex therapist Out of my experience working in treatment, realizing that people were not able to talk about sex, their discussions around sex growing up didn't exist, or there was shame and guilt around it. It was really uncomfortable for them to talk about whether it was proclivities, fetishes, desires, orientation issues, identification issues, etc. Um, And so my thought was, let me garner more knowledge around this. I decided to become a sex therapist at that point, rather than a CSAT therapist, which is solely for sex addiction. It was important to me to be able to help educate, provide a safe space for people to be able to talk, and get knowledge, understanding, compassion, and helping people on their journey around sexual concerning issues. The trauma um, lens came from that as well, really feeling passionate about what's underneath The majority of what we deal with is trauma-related. A lot of people look at trauma specifically, and that's the buzzword. Nowadays, as we go to collective get-togethers of colleagues, eight out of ten people in the room say that they're trauma therapists, and we probably all are, so there's no doubting that, but that's how important this work has become. Really focusing also on attachment-focused trauma, Um, an attachment-focused EMDR. And it's just the direction things are going nowadays.
0: I think so. So you and I both had the same EMDR supervisor for our certification, Rachel Starr. And she really oriented, I think, each of us heavily in the work of Laurel Parnell, who is the pioneer of attachment-focused EMDR. And so the additional educational credits beyond the regular EMDR training for both of us were in Laurel Parnell's work of attachment-focused EMDR. And I'll tell you, I really am so grateful to have participated in that training and grateful to have taken those additional steps because my understanding of how Family of origin trauma impacts people's experience of relationships and the way they show up in the world today. It's a really clear kind of straight line that was never so apparent or well illustrated as it was in learning the work of Laurel Parnell and learning how to apply that to people. So much so that you can really almost isolate single incidents from people's childhood and patterns that shape them into the people they are today and what might create limitations that they thought were unrepairable.
1: John Bowlby came up with attachment theory. I believe it was in the 70s, but don't quote me on that, right? And what they've discovered from the research that he did around it was that attachment starts at age one, and is really solidified by age 3 which if you think about that it's a very short period of time it's based on proximity it's based on secure space and it's based on having a safe place to turn and so where the attachment focused emdr comes from is john bowlby's theory of attachment theory right and Um, our, it's based on our relationship with caregivers. Not all of us are fortunate enough to have someone in our lives that provides us with those basic needs that we have. It could be, there's actually two things that I would recommend if people would like more information about, it's not a plug for myself, I promise, but if they'd like more information about attachment is reading the book Attached. It talks about, Um, attachment in relationships. And then also going back to a video called The Silent Parent. I don't know if you remember seeing that in maybe grad school or, you know, in, in one of your courses that you've done, but it really has an impact. A baby watches a parent come in and not interact with it. And it is so sad and heartbreaking to watch. And that's where attachment really starts forming. And we adapt to our environment. And then what happens is our brain then sometimes cannot process what's going on. So this carries over into adulthood. So it affects our relationships at work, our relationships with our loved ones, our relationships with our families, everything we do, it affects. So that's why the attachment focused EMDR is so important and looking at it from that lens.
0: So, I was taking a continuing education course on polyvagal theory, which is, again, kind of like a deeper dive into some of the neurological implications of of attachment, the heart-brain connection, if you will. And the way, I, I wish I could remember this woman's name, but the way that she described it, it's almost too perfect. And she said, you want to think about secure attachment about the level of trust and safety and security that maybe an infant would feel in the arms of a caregiver. So the benchmark for complete secure attachment is can you fall asleep in the arms of such and such? Because that's complete vulnerability. And I always think about that like when my dog comes up into my lap and just naps in there, where you know the dog is just completely secure and comfortable and that the trust is inherent, right? It's just there.
1: That's such a beautiful thing. That's what you're describing as attachment trauma. And where attachment trauma comes from is when there's an absence of a nurturing caregiver. When the person doesn't protect you, when the person doesn't provide with security, there's a complete deficit in those two things. And can you imagine the dog not feeling safe enough to be able to fall asleep next to you or in your lap? It would go and hide or, you know, take a hike somewhere else. It's very sad to think about. And that's what a lot of children experience and again, carries over into adulthood.
0: And sometimes they just bite you.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I'm talking about the children.
1: Now. The children or the dog, Eric. What are <laughs> we talking about sometimes here? Sometimes
0: both of them bite you.
1: Yeah. Attachment-focused EMDR is really based on developing the nurturance with caregivers. We use bilateral stimulation. I won't break down all of EMDR unless you want me to. I want
0: people to listen to this. <laughs> <Exactly>.
1: so. <laughs> so I won't do please, that. Please yes, don't. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll skip over the minutiae. But using bilateral stimulation to desensitize the trauma that they experienced in childhood. We reprocess to create a more adaptive belief. So we switch from negative... Um, Belief to a positive belief. It's so beautiful. And we do that. How we do that is we repair what should have happened, not what happened. We're looking at developing a safe place. And this is all Laurel Parnell. We're looking at developing a safe place. We're looking at developing a nurturing figure. We're looking at developing a protective figure. We're looking at developing a wise figure, and the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of clients that I work with is, but I never had that. And that's kind of the point, is that we realize you haven't had that in the attachment-focused EMDR, and so let's develop it. It doesn't have to have existed. I can speak from a personal experience when I've done this work. My protective figure was Batman truth be told, sorry, I don't know much about superheroes. In fact, when my son plays the game of, mommy, if you could be any superhero, who would you be? I think to myself, oh my gosh, I don't know. But I've now started saying Mrs. Incredible. Is that really her name?
0: Mrs. Incredible? Uh, yeah, is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, uh, I the, don't know. Th- there's a family. The yeah, Incredibles. the
1: Incredibles. So I'm Mrs. Incredible. Okay. Yeah, that's who I become. But So we create and develop new neural pathways that can be neutral, that can be protective, that can be more connected, so that we can have secure attachments in relationships, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think that the target is always really to kind of figure out from that grouping you know, protective and nurturing figures, what was missing the most? Because if it's nurturing, if it's protection, if it's wisdom, you'll sort of see these patterns emerging in the person's life. Like, let's say it's the wisdom figure that seems the most foreign, that this is a person who has gone through their whole life feeling like they've never gotten the proper guidance on anything and often, like, went through life feeling like they didn't know how to do things that other people could do because no one ever taught them. Or the nurturing piece, which is that no one was ever compassionate or empathetic. And again, that gets repeated in life because I think people who have those early traumas and have the anxious attachment, insecure attachments are often really tolerant of unnurturing behavior in their relationships as adults. So things that might make a more securely attached person run away, they'll hang around for it or even hope to win the other person over Because I'm going to attribute whatever's going on in this relationship that's problematic, this abusive relationship that I'm in, I'm going to attribute it more to myself. So I'm more likely to think if I shape my behavior, if I do what you want me to do, you won't be mad at me anymore. So this is kind of more my fault. And in looking at you and seeing your displeasure with me, my reaction to that is going to be anxiety. And I'm going to want to do whatever I have to do to try to earn favor with you. And if I'm talking about a relationship with like a really pathological and abusive person, there is no what you can do to make them love you the way you want to be loved. The relationship will in all likelihood continue to be unreasonable accommodations uh, to a person who is like abusive. And I find that with our population, especially like the substance use disorder clients, that have had abusive relationships in childhood, they're often finding themselves into these unhealthy relationships as adults. Even people who've been sober for a very long time and are actually super functional and successful in lots of areas in their life, it's usually in this area of intimacy where there's like a lot of struggling.
1: It's because the brain draws a connection to the trauma that occurred even though you're not consciously thinking about it, that connection is already there. The neuropathways have created this web inside your brain that attributes what you are experiencing currently with what happened in the past. The familiar term for clinicians and even some clients is trauma bond. That's what you're describing. And so our goal in EMDR is to disrupt that connection and really rewire the pathways, so that we can start thinking a little bit differently about ourselves. When we don't have an ideal parent, that's what we're looking for. The security, the safety, the proximity. Proximity just meaning if I go away, I can come back and I know you're gonna be there. This exists even in college. There's that theory of the helicopter parent There's that theory of the empty nest syndrome. There's all those things that come up because there's such anxiety about a kid going away or a young adult going away to college and not coming back. The secure attachment looks like when a young adult can go away to college and come home and know their parents or caregivers are happy and feel good and they just get right back into the routine of things. So if we can repair the neuropathways in the brain, so that we start feeling more positively about relationships, experiences, events that happen in our life, we're doing our job. We're meeting the goal of Attachment-Focused DMDR. And it's amazing to watch with clients as they start to heal and start to uncover some of this history that has been going on, generations even.
0: It's pretty incredible to think that you can sort of go back into somebody's life And help deconstruct the worst thing that ever happened to them by having them think about, in a very concentrated and focused way, what if you went through the same thing, but you had everything you needed and when you came out of it you didn't have any belief about it that it was somehow attributed to you like that it was your fault that someone bullied you or whatever the thing was
1: could you imagine how healing that would be for so many people it is yeah
0: It is. And it's interesting, too, that with the EMDR, we kind of discover, I think that modality sort of made that discovery that ultimately what makes these traumas the worst is what people believe about it in terms of how it defines them as people. It's my fault. I'm helpless. I'm weak. I'm, you know, uh, unlovable, whatever the thing is
1: our system is overwhelmed. It gets imprinted in our brain. We don't know otherwise. New experiences are still translated the same as the old experiences. Because remember, the attachment happens between age one and three. It's really solidified at age three. Many of us can't even remember what happened back then.
0: It's interesting because attachment is between one and three. But I feel like The window for attachment wounds (laughs) goes on for many, (laughs) many years. Many, many years after that.
1: Yeah, that's the recreation of the trauma. And remember, trauma is the event, the experience, and the effect that it's had on you. So when we experience something similar, we experience it all over again. It's almost like it's renewed or revived in our system
0: yeah, it's really interesting work, and I'm glad that we have an opportunity to do it. And, you know, obviously, you and I are both passionate about it, and you were very helpful to me, because I was doing the certification after you had done yours, and you were around, so you sort of helped me get the recordings and all of that that stuff in order, because it's the certification process to become a certified EMDR therapist, a little bit different than just the the training piece
1: yeah 10 hours after you complete the course 20 hours after that with ongoing sessions with people it's pretty cumbersome i also remember from the experience not thinking that i would really be able to go there when we did one of the recordings and realizing very quickly i had no choice but to go there and it was a little overwhelming, um, but I was happy to help. And you still owe me a couple of sessions.
0: That's right. Well, do you want me to bust out the recording now? No, <laughs>
1: no, I, I would prefer if you didn't. I mean, you don't, you don't <laughs> but listen, thank you, Eric. <laughs> you don't want to
0: listen to that now? No. Um,
1: I don't even remember what we talked about.
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay, I, I actually, I deleted it by the
1: way good one of my many traumas
0: yeah it's not yeah. going to turn up on the uh, on the good counsel podcast <laughs> okay
1: thank you eric thank you for protecting my confidentiality the,
0: the yeah. Tempany edition <laughs>
1: Right, i have better editions than that one
0: okay i got i know i know that's good it's good when we get to a point where we realize that uh the worst thing that happened to us is not the most interesting thing about right. us right
1: yeah, it's a kind of a relief and realizing the world doesn't revolve around me, so that's even better.
0: Okay, so let me ask you a cheesy podcast question. At what point did you know you wanted to be a therapist?
1: I knew in my early 20s that I wanted to be a therapist, but it goes back, my undergraduate degree from Arizona State, don't comment on that. Yes, it was a party school. <laughs> was not safe for anyone. Um, But my undergraduate degree is in recreational therapy. So I always believed that I would work with children and do some type of medical play with them. And life took me in a different direction. In my early 20s, I ended up in therapy for myself. Um, After six years of therapy, and the end of the experience talking about Nordstrom shoe sales, with my therapist. Nordstrom's was new to Florida back then. I realized I I was good. I was done with therapy at that point in my life. I was feeling better. And I remember thinking, I'm going to go back and get my master's degree. And so I did. Um, I was 29 years old when I went back to school, my graduates from Nova Southeastern, and I knew in my heart of hearts that I wanted to be a therapist. I always knew I wanted to be in private practice, but it took me a little bit longer to take the leap of faith and I tell people to this day, they'll say to me you seem very passionate about what you do and I say I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I absolutely love Doing what I do and working with clients and watching people through their experience, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I think um, anybody who's doing this in any level of consistency, you almost have to feel that way in order to continue doing it and to enjoy any experience of uh, success. So tell me what all is involved in being a sex therapist? What is the credentialing process?
1: I'm only laughing because when I'll tell people it's become a joke, if you will, at get togethers or events or things like that, that I'm a sex therapist, because it sounds way kinkier than it really is. So I just need to put that out there.
0: I feel like the minute you say the word sex therapist, people giggle.
1: They do, 100%. There's some humor attached to that. There's some, there's some I, I attribute it to discomfort. I could be wrong.
0: I'm trying to think because there's definitely an image I have in my mind of what a sex therapist is. And I'm sure whatever that thought is probably came from the movies or TV. <laughs> and I'm trying to think. What movie or television had a sex therapist in it where something goofy was going on that made it silly? And-
1: I- I'm not sure, but I think I ride somewhere between Dr. Ruth and the woman from How to Build a Sex Room. If you've ever seen that, it's pretty amazing. She's funky. She's spunky. She's all those things. Um there's also a great show um
0: Dr. Ruth.
1: Yeah, yeah, there I, you go.
0: I blanked on that completely. <laughs> she's Dr. the one. Ruth. She's the one that everyone knows.
1: Yeah, Dr. Ruth. Somewhere in between there, but um the credentialing really is it was uh, this was years ago. I I can't even recall. I want to say 12 to 15 years ago that I did this and it was a year-long process. I went down to It's called the International Institute of Clinical Sexology. Dr. Carol Clark is who founded the institute, and it was a year-long program at that time.
0: I have to imagine that the levels of interactions with your peers and the work that you had to get do together and the exercises that go on between students in sexology, that the level of cringy awkwardness in some of that stuff probably over the course of a year just completely desensitized you to any sort of conversation you were going to have about any condition you might learn about after the fact.
1: At this point, nothing surprises me. Nothing shocks me. I can talk about anything With anyone, um, and it's not uncomfortable for me, is the truth. It's more uncomfortable when I'm at a party and someone wants to tell me about what's going on in their bedroom. I'm not a big fan of that.
0: What sort of parties have you gone to? (laughs) (laughs) It's happening where people are busting that out. It could be at
1: my husband's work dinner. I don't know. It could be, you know, at the neighbor's barbecue. It's the most bizarre. I could be at a play date with some moms in my neighborhood. It's very uncomfortable and very awkward, but. The truth is, is working past people's preconceptions, judgments, insecurities, and that includes the students in the class for the certification. There was there was some very cringy moments. There are people that made you feel a little uncomfortable, um, people that made you feel... A little bit of guilt or a little bit of shame or whatever it was. And the good news is, is that where I was working, we were allowed to use those people, so our clients as case studies. We'd have to ask their permission, of course, but we could use them rather than our own personal lives as part of the case studies. So that was the right way to do it. Very professional, thankfully. I did not need to know about what my colleagues were doing or what their sexual concerning issues were or anything like that. But I found that There is a more prevalent need for sex therapy, whether it's infidelity or discomfort within the bedroom with people not having sex, feeling like they have premature ejaculation, which turns out that it's not because the statistics and the facts around that are just really misconstrued. It's like playing a game of telephone. I love the sex therapy part just as much as the trauma. I don't like one better than the other, but I find that they very often go hand in hand. And actually, I'm working on my PhD in clinical sexology.
0: Oh, I had no idea. Good for That's exciting.
1: I'm at the dissertation part of it, and it's kind of got me a little bit stumped right now. I've got the first two chapters finished. I'm doing it on my study is a grounded theory study, much like Brene Brown does, where I ask the questions to develop the theory. And it's on sex addiction in the Orthodox Jewish community.
0: Amazing. Yeah. High incidence?
1: Yeah. But also the problem is that it's not talked about.
0: Is anything talked about? No. Right. <laughs> I just think that's the way it goes with cloistered and Closed societies of any sort.
1: Absolutely.
0: Privacy is...
1: Of utmost importance. It's valued.
0: Yeah. There's a clear boundary of in-group and out-group, right?
1: Yeah. And sex addiction, truthfully, to be talked about, comes with a heavy bag of shame and guilt and discomfort and feelings of disgust. Partners don't like to talk about it because it's embarrassing it means something's wrong with them again going back to the emdr this is where all that comes in handy fascinating stuff
0: yeah it really is uh i'm excited for you about the phd i didn't actually know that you were doing that
1: yeah it's been in the works for quite a while but you know slow and steady wins the race i set small goals and go from there so i'll let you know when i finish all that
0: sure that's super exciting thanks eric So, what else do you have going on? You working on anything else currently? I guess that's probably enough.
1: (laughs) Raising a family. Actually, you mentioned polyvagal, and I did a wonderful training with polyvagal. So, I incorporate that. Um, In addition to internal family systems, I incorporate that. But I'm kind of of the mindset where I pull from different areas and genres and kind of incorporate it and just really like to make therapy relatable to people i always say that i don't talk above my pay grade and even once i do get the doctorate it's just a personal achievement it's not for anything else it um i still won't talk above my pay grade so yeah that's what's going on right now
0: all right so if anybody listening to this uh wanted to get in touch with you maybe schedule some work uh had some intimacy issues, wanted to work on sex therapy or work within uh, any one of the other specialties that you have. What is the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: They can head to my website, which is tempany.net, um, and get all my contact information, read more about what I do on the website.
0: Tempany.net.
1: Very unique.
0: Well, that's a pretty bold move where you can just <laughs> use your first name, dot something. I've-
1: I I remember we had to do this dog and pony show in treatment where we had to stand up and introduce ourselves to people. And my name at the time was Tempany Verzal. I've since married and all that. So it's a little bit easier now. But it was such a mouthful that I just cut my last name off. And then I would joke saying that I was like Madonna or Cher or Sting or whoever else. That's um, actually pretty cool. Right? So it's just Tempany. I don't say my last name very often. It's just Tempany.
0: I like it. Yeah. Tempany.net.
1: Tempany.net.
0: Nice. It sounds yeah. like a clothing line or something. Oh, <laughs> ah,
1: thank you, Eric.
0: Why Good not? idea. Why? Yeah.
1: Why not add one more thing to the list of why, why things not? that I'm engaging in? Yeah. yeah.
0: You have your own. Tempany verse.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: All right. Well, Tempany, I appreciate you coming out. Mm. Obviously, you're a very busy lady doing a lot of different things with your practice and schooling and family and everything. So I appreciate you making a little bit of time to come over here and talk to myself and whomever the audience might be about attachment focused EMDR and a lot of the other clinical work that you're doing. Thank you so much
1: for joining me. Thank you, Eric.